You're listening to What's Up Digital Lending, the podcast that explores the exciting world of digital lending. We make a deep dive into the most important issues and talk to the leading minds of the ecosystem. In this episode, we are podcasting live from the first Consumer Finance Summit in Cologne on October 27th. The digital lending market has grown rapidly across Europe in recent years. In the first half of 2022, the share of online consumer loans in Germany amounted to more than 30%. The Consumer Finance Summit provided an in-depth look into the market and what opportunities are available to investors. Welcome to the show. Join Konstantin Fabricius as host and his two guests, Christian Finke and Philipp Kriependorf. Christian Finke is Managing Director with Monega, an investment company from Cologne in Germany. Among other things, he is responsible for portfolio management and sales to institutional clients. Philipp Kriependorf is co-founder and co-CEO with Aux Money from Düsseldorf in Germany. Aux Money is one of the largest digital lenders for consumer loans in Europe. Now, pay attention please. The content of this podcast is expressly not to be considered an investment recommendation, but it is intended solely for your information. Hello, Christian Finke. Happy to have you here in our first uh, podcast, uh, Digital Lending WhatsApp. And uh, hello, Philipp Kriependorf. Happy to have you here. And um, yes, uh, we are here in uh, Cologne on the first uh, Consumer Finance Summit. And um, the audience may uh, hear in the background uh, the voices of our fellow guests. Uh, yes, it is really a live recording. And uh, what I would really like to talk with you about uh, is the summit. What is your impression, uh, Christian? F firstly, I was really amazed by seeing so many interested people in the space because from a investor perspective, particularly outside of maybe family offices and and um, high net worth individuals, for, for institutional clients, there are not then that many summits, conferences, seminars in Germany on that topic. So that was really well established. Yeah, I was really amazed about that too. When I came here, I was astonished about how many people actually showed up. It's really good, especially because it's the first of its kind, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's first of its kind. And to all we know, um, it's unique in Europe. We don't have such a format nowhere. And we know this uh, from the United States or from Asia, but we pull together originators with institutional investors. So that's really unique. And uh, well, speaking for the association, uh, yes, I'm really very happy about it. And in particular, very happy that we have done it uh, together with Nordics and Monega, our partners uh, here to organize uh, this event. Okay. But uh, let's talk uh, details. What is your key takeaway of today's summit regarding the content? What is really what you take back home? I think that we're on the path really to um, establish an asset class. I hope it's here to stay because, um, as we have discussed earlier on, uh, clearly due to um, higher rates, the investment for, for the platforms becomes more difficult. They hopefully have enough financial power they have enough leverage on their platform that they can stay of course. And, um, and that would mean for us 
that we have enough time to do the educational work with investors in order to make it a, a suitable asset class for them. We might be on a path, but my impression was that we're still quite at the beginning, at least in Europe. My overall impression of uh, the summit was that I think the landscape's pretty generic still. I think there are well-established players, a few, very few that are generating assets that could make up a product for, for institutional investors. I think we're really at the beginning because there's so many other players and there aren't any standards. Everything feels very unique in terms of, in terms of size, in terms of market, in terms of quality. So I think there's still a bit of a way to go before that gets to be a, a broadly accepted uh, investment product, especially for institutional investors that might be restricted in the ways they invest. Agreed. I think it's still perceived as a, as a banking product, probably through the dominant players. But my understanding is that, first of all, in Asia, the marketplace is, seems to, to be smaller nowadays, maybe due to economic political frictions. And that means that we have the opportunity to establish something in Europe, which is not in significant, in significant amounts there, it's a chance to develop the place. Absolutely. I mean, funding is key if this segment is going to be successful or not. I mean, if, if there's no funding for the platforms, then they won't be able to originate and then that's it. I think it's different if you look at Asia, especially, or the United States, where the banking sector is not as overdeveloped as it is in Europe, especially in, in Northern Europe. I mean, the platforms have a different proposition and it's, I think it's much harder for them to, uh, to find their place in the landscape. Right. And that's, I think, something that, that showed today as well. So we had someone from Switzerland, which seems to be a, a completely unique market in Europe, obviously. Feels like no risk at all. <laughs> Fantastic. Returns are okay, but why not? I mean, that was really interesting to hear. For us, it would hopefully constitute something something new, really a new asset class. Uh, as you said, the, um, in, in the US, Asia, it's, it's more mainstream already. But specifically in the US, I mean, they are so much used to any kind of structured products, any kind of transparency, any kind of securitization. Since the financial crisis, I think Europe has done a poor job to reestablish anything that goes beyond typical um, treasuries, cover bonds and corporate bonds. Absolutely, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think part is the culture, I think. We're very, very careful when it comes to new things. And once it didn't work out, then we don't want any of it at all. And then there's, I think, the EU that, that has a habit of regulating everything they can and regulating a lot of it away and more so in the banking uh, in the banking environment and uh, yeah that's not helping definitely not not any not an international comparison absolutely true and i think we would like to be uh, number one in regulation and in sustainability and things like that on the other hand we have to deliver returns on, with a decent risk and i think we have to work hard even do the lobby job to make sure that our public, our institutional investors, our semi-professional investors get the chance to invest in decent enough and very well diversified products. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fact that so many people showed up today and, and really asked quite informed questions shows that there is interest and that there, is, there might be demand if it's at all possible for them to invest and to understand it. There were a few questions that were seemed very informed. They had deep knowledge of, of the market and the history, also the American market like Lending Club and, and Prosper and so on and so forth. And on the other hand, I always had the feeling that a lot of people uh, there in the audience had trouble following because they didn't know the basics I always felt the need to explain actually what we are referring to when we say digital lending. I mean, who is a digital lender, who is not? Uh, what does he do? What's the distinction? What is the niche that he's playing in? It, maybe it was just my impress- impression, but I think there's also some groundwork to do, especially with investors. It's also a, an experience that, that we've made at Auxmoney when we spoke to, when we started talking to institutional investors seven years ago. And still do. I mean, we've become more professional on both sides, ourselves and the investors that we talk to. But a lot of times we get get questions. What is it that you do? I mean, what is digital lending? So I think there's some more work to do. It's it was the first conference of this style and with this topic. But I think we need more. I guess both platforms and asset managers really have to to try to accept that there are different terminologies with investors. So either they, they're speaking in a risk-return spectrum, and it's sometimes hard to get the, the, the data, the historical data on, on lending is not that old, the asset class. So our back tests are maybe looked at it with an um, insecure, unsure way. Is, is that valid? Have they seen various recessions? What happened? What happens if unemployment rises significantly? What would covenants do in certain, um, in certain scenarios? I think all of us, we have to do a, a more decent, a good job to make investors understand what is it all about. I mean, private debt, private equity clearly don't really 100% at the moment fit in the risk return spectrum. Why? They don't price daily. It's a different animal. Still, it's our job to fit in asset allocation of um, either family offices and um, institutional investors and others. So that's, that's certainly one significant place where we have to improve, but also... As you said, we have a, an enormous number of re- regulation coming over us on a new asset class. So our investors are currently under pressure to find the way through all the regulation, particularly ESG regulation, but also they need to ensure that, for example, their capital requirements are working in an asset class like, like lending, uh, direct lending, or the funds that invest in direct lending, and also there. I mean, how does it work under uh, Solvency 2? How does it work under liquidity capital requirements and so forth? It's a challenge. It's a job we have to do, but I'm sure we will do. Yeah, agree. Well, yes, uh, we are on a good way because we have uh, now started uh, today uh, to develop uh, together this asset class. Interestingly, uh, talking with Americans about uh, digital lending, they all know what it is. So it is so common. It has been common for more than 10 years now. Talking with uh, people from uh, Asia, it is so common. Why not here? Yes, I think this is one of the key questions. Why are we so late on this development? As I said, I mean, Europe, especially Germany, is such an overbanked market. I mean, you have a small bank at every, at every corner. You have the Sparkassen, you have the large corporate banks. Everybody is offering a loan product and everybody is offering a loan product that is suitable for customers. The competition is huge for banks to acquire new customers especially borrowers. 
And that's different in other markets. United States, for example, I mean, they had a very, very well-developed uh, credit card market. Everybody used it because it's so easy, but it was way too expensive for consumers. It was totally overpriced. So when the first digital lenders stepped in, it was really easy for them to just tell people, refinance your credit card debt. I mean, it's clear to everybody that it's risk-based pricing. It's cheaper for someone to have an installment loan. So everybody did it. That created huge volumes uh, of, of digital lending quite early on. Created other problems for the lenders on the funding side, but still, I mean, they had an easy, uh, an easy entry. In Asia, the market was rather unbanked or underbanked in comparison to Europe. So it's a little bit of a different start there. People are widely spread, huge countries. Next bank branch is, is hundreds of miles away, probably. So delivering products electronically was, just seems to be the right way. Small amounts electronically assess risks because you don't see who's sitting there. You don't have access to centralized credit data. So it's a completely different market. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why the new segment is really has a harder stand in Europe. And we need to find things where we are better than banks. One thing certainly is the interaction with the, with the, with the customer and showing the customer what's possible to be able to do everything from home on a smartphone really easy and quick and only with the with the level of interaction that i really want that certainly is is one of the key drivers for digital lending in in europe banks are learning thankfully not that fast <laughs> so i think we still have have a head start there on top of that we have to find out what else we can offer that banks cannot and i think um, one of the things, at least for, for us at Aux Money, is financial inclusion. I think there are still a lot of people, more than you might think, uh, that don't have access to credit, that cannot take part in the financial supply of society. And I think that's where um, platforms like ours, like the ones organized in our trade organization, can do a valuable job of including more people more efficiently. And I think that's harder to do. We have to do a much better job than, than American platforms and then Asian platforms. But I think we're on a good way there. I would like to add maybe a comparison between the U.S. and Europe mainly, uh, leaving Asia aside for a second. The U.S. has been a single currency market for ages. It has been a huge market, a liquid market. So whenever you create a new platform, a new business idea, it's within that big market. So from day one, your opportunities are much larger than in Europe. Europe has become what? A single market in 2000, right? That's when the euro really hit us all. And we, can, we could start to establish across a good number of countries, a business model with the same currency. However, with the um, consumer finance market, that was again created in single markets. It was not as if we had a, a European platform from day one. So if you take the history, the size of the market, and then eventually came the financial crisis, which had a much harder impact on, on Europe than it had on the U.S. in terms of product development, asset class acceptance, asset class maybe even, even um, being motivated to be invested in by central banks, by governments, by regulation. I would guess between 2007, when it all started, and then into the low teens, maybe 12 to, to 13, it was really hard to establish something that wasn't as simple as a treasury bond, a corporate bond, or a covered bond. 
Um, anything that had to be structured, uh, had to be pooled, was neither fostered by the investors themselves, nor by the European Central Bank, nor by the local politicians. So I think the, the start was really, really hard. And hopefully we don't get another, another break in that development in the next couple of years, but understand that it's helpful for all of us to have a new asset classes with different characters, but significant in size. I mean, the volumes that we've seen um, across the summit today, that is, that, that is as large as some huge cover bond markets. Let's talk a little bit about uh, credit risk management. Uh, we have heard so much about it today. And uh, what uh, I find very interesting is that there are actually two different perspectives on the investor side. So they're the one who really uh, like doing it by their own and uh, they really go into the nitty gritty details and uh, have uh, a very high level of, uh, of knowledge about uh, the originator originators actually about the techniques and all the things that are really um, necessary to roll out a uh, high quality risk management. But on the other side, there are those, this is what we have heard today, which do not really like to go into the details and they leave it to like the funds or other specialists. So what is your view on this? As a platform, I can understand the demand of investors who think they can do a better job in selecting loans than we can, but I would never allow it. We've had the, the example of Lending Club. It was said that Lending Club allowed and still allows, which I wasn't aware of, still allows to cherry pick loans within the individual loan classes. And then on the other hand, it was said that in uh, a few years back, if you would just buy Vertical Slicer Lending Club, you wouldn't be able to make money. There's a connection there, you know? I mean, if I allow someone to pick out the best loans in each risk class, what happens? I mean, the risk classes don't perform. Because if the best ones are gone, then the rest is the crap, uh, to be frank. It really creates a problem for the platform, and it did with Lending Club as well. They outgrew the problem because they were big enough with investors who took vertical slices so they can afford to have a few investors that they allow to cherry pick because the impact is not that big on, it, on, the, on the asset. I would never allow it. It might be necessary for small platforms to, get a, to start off to get some funding at least, but I don't think it's a viable business model going forward. If, if these platforms survive, there might be a few that outgrow it, get as big as Lending Club, and then they don't have a problem with it. But I don't think a platform, I don't think it's a good practice for a platform. We've never allowed it at Aux Money. Uh, we've always looked at investor returns for each score class. In the end, it's a blend, obviously. But we've never even allowed uh, investors to actually select score classes or anything. You have the problem, what do you do with the rest? I mean, if you have someone who only wants double A, A and B, then you need someone to take C, D and E. That's actually kind of management that we do. What we do, however, is we share data on a loan level with investors. So what we found makes the process easy, much easier is if we talk to someone who knows what he, what he does, if he understands how to analyze a loan portfolio, how to calculate internal rate of returns, how to calculate loss ratios, stuff like that. It's, it's much, much easier if we have someone who we can discuss this. Well, I guess my angle to, to the question would be who has 
the data, who has the models, and who has the analytics of the platform and the manpower to come to the opinion that they can do a better loan selection than the platforms themselves and maybe specific or specialized asset measures. There will be a few. Uh, clearly, there might be a few that can do the job. But if I look at our clients, our clients would be pension funds, ins medium-sized insurance companies, sometimes smaller um, institutional investors, maybe family offices. Now, these guys look at, God knows, let's say 20 asset classes with 10 people or maybe 12 people. Can they afford two other, three other, four other analysts, data analysts, focusing on a, at the end of the day, minor part of the overall portfolio? Probably not. They don't have the leverage and it wouldn't be worthwhile. If it was an asset allocation where they would allocate 20, 30% of their portfolio, different matter. As we had discussed previously, it's still a small asset class in Europe. And therefore, we're talking about certainly single digits, maybe even 1% of people's asset allocation. So you better leave it with the specialized asset managers, the platforms, look at their models, look at the, the results that they take from that. And you, certainly you have quant capabilities in your own shop so that there will be an educated discussion with the platforms or the asset managers and or the asset managers. But will most investors tend to do it themselves? Probably not. I agree. The institutional investors that spend the most, most of the money actually have people because they are large institutions to understand what we're talking about when we share that kind of data. If we want to make that asset class available on a broader to a broader audience, then we need some sort of some, some sort of middle layer, like a like a securitization, because mm -hmm. that's what people understand. That's where you make where you standardize risk and return profiles, and then that works. And that that would require either platforms that are large enough to to do it themselves, like we've done, or you need intermediaries that can do that job. Exactly. I think that's the way into the market. I mean, some people might say, I'm, I'm large enough, I invest in the platforms themselves. Or they invest directly in the platforms and get access to the data and the analytics. Or they have the intermediaries in between. Another issue uh, we were touching on today was the outlook. And uh, we have heard that ESG is really a, a very important issue uh, in the future. So there uh, we have very many different views on this, whether it is really important to have such in-depth ESG policy or do we perhaps have other better approaches? What is your thinking on this, what you have heard today? Right. I mean... Clearly, there, there's no way around sustainability and some form of standardization. However, at this point in time, I think there are a lot of people out there who are happy if they didn't implement processes, because how can you operationally risk-free establish a process that is not well-defined? And unfortunately, the European ESG taxonomy, SFDR policies are not well-defined. It's something that we have to face as a challenge and also as a risk day in day out uh, so um, if I had the choice I would lean back uh, for two years I don't have the choice but I, I would and see what will be the the result I mean let it run for a year or two and then hopefully we'll have a clearer picture of how sustainability for investments in certain asset classes would look like Yeah, that's a problem, I think. I mean, I was really amazed that we uh, came through uh, two panels and one speech without one once hearing the word uh, ESG, I think. And only, I think, on the uh, second to last 
program point, it, it came up. Usually that doesn't happen nowadays. I mean, it's it's there, it's and it's it's not going away. Everybody's talking about it. Certainly, something that every institutional investor has on its mind, and I think with the same with the same problems that you just that you just described, it's 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 a risk. Nobody knows uh, what the outcome will be. Nobody knows how to structure it in a way that he is that he will be compliant with something that will everybody knows is coming, but nobody knows how it's going to look. Um, we don't have that that luxury to just lean back. So I think the best thing that we can do is try to figure out for ourselves what we can do right now and do it if it's in any way possible in terms of costs for especially and then see uh, where especially the EU takes this. They've been working on this for quite some time now and so far I've seen nothing that, that uh, promises an easy, an easy outcome or a good outcome. I don't know. Don't get us wrong. I think we we would both agree that uh, climate risk is there, and 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 we Absolutely. have to do we have to do something. However, if the negotiations within Brussels, etc., don't get to terms, and even on the easiest of things, which is fossil fuel, gas, nuclear energy, etc., if they don't get to uh, to an agreement on, on those, uh, we're still far far away from any social or or, or governance standards. I would have loved if they thought it through earlier on and give us really well-defined targets, uh, but make sure that we actually receive the data. Um, because what, what happens is we as the financial industry, at the end of the day, are the front runner of something that the companies still have to deliver the data on. Um, think about the next couple of years in terms of depending on what the size of the, the company is, your enterprise is, in terms of employees, you have to deliver the data either earlier or later. I think the latest bucket is in 2026. So um, uh, what do we do? We have investments in smaller entities. Um, we have investment in large entities which might deliver, uh, but there are IRS where you really, really struggle. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Thank you, Christian and Philip. Uh, today we just wanted to uh, start with this new podcast, WhatsApp Digital Lending. And uh, now we all would very much like to go to the reception, I think. And uh, yes, it was very uh, uh, great to have you here with uh, our number one. And um, we will certainly have another opportunity to exchange views uh, at a later point of time. And uh, yeah. Thank you very much uh, to the audience uh, for listening to our uh, number one podcast. Please uh, be with us and the next time. Bye. Thank Bye. you very much. Thanks. Pleasure. Thanks.